0: You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be, and we're going to actually start in just a moment in verse 1. But before we do, I want to ask you a question. Does anyone in here ever feel stuck in prayer? ever feel like when it comes to prayer, like there's a wall between you and between God, and you're not really sure who put the wall up? I mean, is it on your side? Is it on God's side? Anyone ever in here ever feel like maybe whenever you sit down to pray, like, I don't know, maybe you're like me and your mind runs 100 miles per hour, and you think about what's on your to-do list, or your mind just kind of spins out of control with anxiety. Or maybe you sit down, and like me, sometimes uh, you're just tired, and you have a fog over your brain, and you know you're supposed to pray, but, but Netflix just seems so much more appealing, or just kind of like vegging out and staring at sky. A... Like, is anybody else in there? Or is it just me that feels that way? Okay. Or, or maybe you're in here, and you're like, actually, I kill it in prayer. Like, I'm really consistent in my prayer life. However, though you pray regularly... If you can be honest, maybe for some of you today, you still feel like your prayers are hitting a ceiling. Uh, Maybe when you look at your prayers, you feel like the majority of them are actually even going unanswered. And because of this, you can't shake this feeling that maybe there has to be more that you can be doing when it comes to prayer. And the question we then ask ourselves in light of that is is there a practice? from the life of Jesus? Is there something that we see Jesus doing in his life that we can apply to our life that will help actually aid and amplify our prayer life? Is there something that we can be doing to help us break past that wall, to get beyond that ceiling when it comes to our prayers? And the answer to that question is yes. If you look with me in Acts chapter 13, verses one through three, we read the following. It says, now that we're in the church at Antioch Prophets, and teachers, and Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. And that work, by the way, that's talking about there is a work that we not only see unfold through the rest of the New Testament, but it's a work that was so important, it was because of that work we were able to receive the gospel today here in Paragould, Arkansas. Set apart for me Barnabas and for the work in which I've called them. Then verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I want you to notice that word pairing of fasting and praying. Because whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you see this duo of fasting and praying all throughout the scripture. And what it keys us in on this morning is the reality that though you can pray without fasting... And though you can fast without praying, it seems like when you put the two together, they really play off of each other. And that should come as no surprise whenever you consider that fasting is really a way that we pray within our, with our entire body. It is, as Scott McKnight calls it, he says, fasting is body talk to God. If that's confusing to you, it's very similar to what we do on a Sunday morning, what we just did, where some of us, during singing, you will see us raising our hands. Right, that's not to put on a show. That is literally just a way for us as we raise our hands and say, I'm not just going to embrace these words with my mind or with my lips, but with my entire body. That's what fasting is like, but really to the nth degree. It's a way for us to express our hunger for the person and work of God in our life. And again, not just with our words, but with our whole person. I was debating with a few leaders in our church just a couple weeks ago, and I asked them this question. Do you think that God hears us better when we're hungry? Do you think God hears our prayers better when we're hungry, when we're fasting? And at first glance, we were all kind of like, no, there's no way. I mean, Jesus clearly, he has torn the veil in two so that now, because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, when we trust in that, we have full access into the presence of God. And therefore, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, you can throw up a quick prayer to God, and he hears that. And that is certainly true. That is certainly true. But then you read verses in scripture, for example, Jeremiah 29, 13, where God says to the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me when, when what? You seek me with all of your heart. What does that even mean? You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Arthur Wallace, in his commentary on this, says the following, how often we have made earnest prayer to God for some specific need with the assurance that this was in the will of God, and yet there has been no answer from heaven. Why? It could well be, and often is, that God is saying to us, when you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. Therefore, he goes on to say, when a man is willing to set aside a legitimate appetite of the body... To concentrate on the work of praying, he is demonstrating that he means business, that he is seeking with all of his heart and will not let God go unless he answers. John Piper says it like this. When God sees us fasting, he sees that we have a deep longing that is pulling us too fast. He sees that instead of our heart seeking the ordinary pleasures of human life or acting out of our own strength, that we are instead out of weakness expressing to God our need and our great longing that he would act. And when he sees this, he responds. In other words, what these guys are saying, and what I think even Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, which we read a couple weeks ago, is fasting is a way that we seek God with all of our heart. It's a way for us to express our hunger for God and for God to move with a prayer that is not just with our mind or with our lips, but with our entire being. And therefore, in return, fasting can help aid and amplify our prayer life. And in particular, if you're taking notes this morning, we see fasting do this. We see fasting amplify our prayer life in five different areas, five subcategories or specific types of prayer, if you will, where we see prayer and fasting coupled together in Scripture. And if you're taking notes again, the first place that we see in Scripture where fasting actually serves as an ally to our prayers is when it comes to repentance. Now, I know that the word repentance is kind of a dirty word in our culture right now, but I really believe it's a word that, guys, we have got to recover, rediscover, and reapply to our lives if we are going to experience a personal renewal and a revival and then truly experience the life that God has created us to experience. And the scriptures are actually full of examples where we see prayer and fasting coupled together for the purpose of repentance. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, right, there's that idea again, returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods of Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, that's prayer, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said... Gather all of Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord. So they gathered at Mitzbah and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord. And look, and they fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. I want you to think for a moment about how flippant we can be in our culture, even in Christian culture, when it comes to sin. And as a result, I would say many people, even within the church, tend to live with this toxic shame and guilt in the back of their mind and in all their comments on Facebook. Typically, whenever we sin, if you think about it, we tell God we're sorry in our mind and that we're going to try harder to be better and then we just try to kind of move on from it as quick as possible without thinking about it anymore. And that sounds good, but the problem with that is eventually we sin again, and then again, and then again. And if we never really experience true repentance, we live with this hangover of shame and guilt, or this mild depression or insecurity. If you are in here today and you are living in habitual sin, you know that nothing robs you of your confidence in yourself and in God than living in habitual sin. And if that's where you are this morning, I just want to encourage you to consider fasting as a way of repentance, not as a way to punish yourself, not as a way to prove to God how sorry you really are, but for a way, not every time that you sin, but from time to time to feel the full weight of your sin so that you can sincerely take that sin to Jesus where the forgiveness and freedom has already been purchased for you there. And if you hear that this morning, you're like, man, this sounds legalistic. Well, think about it like this if you have kids. Uh, my wife and I have three kids, and our two oldest are 16 months apart. They actually even uh, sleep in the same room in bunk beds. Um, it's Nora and Wyatt, and, and they are best friends, and they also fight like cat and dogs. And I found this picture uh, that was from three years ago. I don't know, actually, if we still have that on the screen. Maybe we can throw it on there. If not, that's okay. Um, okay, yeah, there it is. And, uh, yeah, isn't that pitiful? And so that is a Nora 1, Wyatt 0, Okay. And so, he's uh, just like, why, Dad, would you let this happen to me? And so, whenever this happened, uh, after Nora tried to basically rip off her brother's face, I, I, I grabbed Nora, and I didn't say to her, oh, you know, babe, I mean, it just happens. You know, we all lose our temper. No big deal, right? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? There's grace for this. I mean, what I did is I grabbed her, and I took her into the bathroom where we were with Wyatt, and, and I said, babe, look at his face. Like, look what you did to him. Like, like you... You've hurt your brother. He's bleeding, like he's in pain. He's crying because of what you've done. And I did that not because I just wanted Nora Kate to just sit in shame and guilt, but I needed, I wanted her in that moment to feel the full weight of what she had done so that she could then sincerely apologize for her own sinfulness and then hopefully as a result receive forgiveness from Wyatt. Now, unfortunately for Nora, her brother's not always quick to forgive her. But fortunately for us, the scripture is clear that no matter who you are or what you've done, our Father in heaven is always quick to forgive those who come to him with their sin. And, and the point I just want to make is this. If you want to truly taste forgiveness this morning, like I'm not talking about like, like yeah, like yeah, mentally I know I'm forgiven, but I'm talking about like you want to feel forgiven. I've never met anybody who feels too forgiven. If you want to feel fully forgiven, listen guys, you have to first feel remorse over your sin. And oftentimes, fasting can help us feel that remorse because unlike its counterpart, feasting, which we talked about last week and we'll talk about again in the next two weeks, right? Feasting is like this feel-good practice. Fasting is not about trying to feel good. Fasting is about empathizing with God. It's meant to tune our hearts to his so that we can see ourselves, including our sin, just as God does. And therefore, when we fast, what it does is oftentimes, rather than us being flippant about sin, we can feel the full weight of that sin and then take it to Jesus who bore the weight of that sin on the cross and there finally feel the forgiveness and the freedom that he has purchased for us by his blood. And so here's just what I would say. Next time that you're experiencing shame or guilt over your sin and you can't shake it, just one maybe suggestion is rather than trying to numb your pain with food, or, or with social media, or I mean, you just feel in the blank. What if instead of doing that, what if you just fasted and you prayed? What if you took time just to feel that and to take it to God? Again, and not for the purpose of earning God's love, but for the purpose of receiving in full, feeling in full the love that has already been poured out for you through Jesus Christ. Secondly, on that note, we see fasting and prayer are coupled together for the purpose of Grief. If you look on the screen at Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4, which should be a familiar passage to you considering we went through the whole book of Nehemiah earlier this year. Nehemiah says this, as soon as I heard these words, and what he's talking about here is he just heard the words that the walls in Jerusalem have been torn down. Back in the ancient times, if you didn't have walls around your city, you wouldn't have a city. And because Nehemiah's heart broke for what broke or what broke the heart of God, he says this, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And look at this. And I continued, here it is again, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Think about how different this is in our culture. In our culture, when we face a tragedy, whether that be death or divorce, we typically do what? We typically turn to food, not away from food. If you think about a funeral, for example, a lot of times after a funeral, people will have, what? A potluck. They'll have food. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se. But have you ever noticed how when something happens... What is your, or when something sad happens, what is typically your body's response to food? You don't gain an appetite, do you? You typically lose an appetite. And I can't help but wonder if like maybe that's the body's way of telling us something that God has wired within us. Once again, Scott McKnight says it like this. Body grief is perhaps one of the purest examples of what fasting is all about. A human being overwhelmed by the sacredness of a moment chooses not to eat in order to sanctify his or her communion with God and participate fully in one of life's grievous moments. In other words, what McKnight is saying here is fasting is a way of us processing our grief with God. It's a way for us to actually feel the pain rather than numbing that pain with food or work or whatever it may be. And guys, listen. We could preach a whole series on this. We've actually done it before. It is so important that we begin to get a biblical understanding of how to handle our grief. Most of us, growing up, were not taught anything about grief. And if we were taught anything about grief, it was basically, don't do it. I, I know for me, and I'm not trying to throw my mom under the bus. My mom is just an imperfect parent, like every single one of you are, and like I am. But I remember I was in fourth and fifth grade, somewhere around there. I'm going to school. I was crying. I didn't want to go to school. I don't remember what happened, but I was sad about something. I was hurt about something. And my mom looked at me and she said to me, if you don't stop crying, everybody at school is going to know you've been crying. Now, what she was saying to me unintentionally was, what matters more than your pain is the fact that people are going to tell that you're crying over your pain. I think about the parent whenever their kid falls and hurts himself and they start crying. What's one of the first things we say as parents? It's okay, don't cry, it's okay. Yeah, don't don't cry, don't cry. Right, again, what matters more? The pain from the moment, or the fact that they're crying about the pain. We communicate what matters more is that you're grieving over what just happened. I think about a church building I was in just recently. Here in our city, it has rules in the foyer. And rule number four was always smile. I was talking with a family that just came into our church recently, and they said one of the things they were most excited about coming here was that they can be in a context where they can be real. They've been in a church their whole lives and felt like if they're sad or having a bad day, well, you just got to fake it till you make it. You come in with a big smile on your face because nobody wants to hear about how bad your life is or whatever else. And and listen, basically, what we've been taught, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is that to grieve is to not have faith, or to grieve is to be immature. But then you look at the scriptures, and what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus, the Bible says, was a man acquainted with sorrows. Jesus was a man that whenever he went to the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, when he shows up to the tomb, he doesn't say, hey, 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 everybody cheer up our loss is heaven's gain, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say heaven gained an angel or like, hey, you know what? I've been there. God's going to work together all things for the good. No, it says when Jesus showed up to the tomb, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, the first thing he did was it says Jesus wept. And that is not just like a little tear, like dab your eye. That was an embarrassing type, like like snot-flying type of cry. Jesus, when he walked up to the tomb, he let grief wash all over him. And the reality is, guys, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to become like Jesus, we have to learn how to grieve. And we have to learn how to grieve well. And one of the ways I think we can do that is simply by fasting. Therefore, what if the next time you experience loss you find yourself experiencing grief over whatever it may be in this world, rather than vegging out on Netflix or distracting yourself with work, what if you just fasted and you prayed as a way of processing that grief before the Lord? On that note, reason number three that we see prayer and fasting allied together is to cry out to God in a crisis. Second Chronicles 20, 1-2 says, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and beyond the sea, and behold, they are in whatever the name of that place is. That is in, or that is called Engedi. Just as the context for you, by the way, before I read any further, Israel has an army that is knocking on their doors, and they want nothing more than to wipe Israel off the map. Okay? And they are an army that, humanly speaking, Israel cannot defeat. And so how does Israel respond? What do they do? Do they go get bigger weapons? Do they go recruit more soldiers? Do they run and hide? No, verse 3. Look at this. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. That's prayer. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek the help from the Lord, again, through prayer, From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then the story goes on. There's this beautiful prayer at the end of this chapter. Listen to this. They say, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, O God. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There are examples all through Scripture where you see prayer and fasting coupled together for the purpose of calling out to God in the middle of a crisis. And we see it not only in Scripture, we see it throughout history. Um, How many of you got a chance to see Christopher Nolan's movie Dunkirk? How many of you, the movie Dunkirk? Excellent movie. Um, The film is basically, it's a true story about a battle that if it had been lost in World War II, it would have turned the whole tide of the battle. The film is great, but what it doesn't cover is actually what happened the day before Dunkirk. In fact, on May 26, 1940, what happened is King George called for a national day of prayer and fasting. We have a picture of it, I believe, we can put on the screen. This is a line of people Right, that are outside of Westminster Abbey, that are trying to get into a church building that day to pray and fast. And this is just a snapshot of what you would have seen at every church building in the United Kingdom on this day, where people are praying and fasting for a move of God. And we know that what happened the next day after this is what we call Dunkirk, but it's what all of these people referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. And the reason they referred to it as the miracle of Dunkirk is because three things happen after they're fasting and praying. One we see that on the same day of prayer and fasting, Winston Churchill, who was also there in this moment, he called for all the small boats. Like if you had a boat, you'd you'd received a call for you to get in your boat and to cross the channel and to go rescue the soldiers who were stranded on the beach. Secondly, there was a violent storm that came on the entire French coast and grounded the German Air Force, making it to where they couldn't take off and kill the Allies. And then third, and I quote, this is from historians, I'm just quoting what historians say, An eerie calm settled over the English Channel, which made it possible for the small boats to cross and rescue the soldiers. Now, we read that and we say, hi, what a coincidence. But these people said, no, this is the miracle of Dunkirk. The point I'm just trying to make is this. There are times in our life where we are in a crisis and we need a miracle. There are times where we need to break through. There are times where we need to see God move in our life and in our church and in our city. And what if the next time a crisis occurred, what if rather than freaking out on social media, what what if rather than just trying to manipulate the situation or control it in our own power, what if we took time, again, to fast and pray? Fourth, what we see is this. The fourth reason we see prayer and fasting coupled together is for the purpose of changing God's mind in a situation. Now, I know that is really provocative language. And there's no way I can tease all this out um, in a sermon. But but in short, listen, as pastors, we do not believe that God is just going to do whatever God is going to do with or without our prayers. Though we absolutely believe God is sovereign and in control of all things and he is working everything out to the counsel of his will, we believe that because we are in a relationship with God whenever we pray to our Father that our prayers actually make a difference. We believe. That's why we have prayer meetings. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't have prayer meetings. That's why we have prayer meetings, and we encourage you to come to this because we believe there are times where we pray, and when we pray, things happen, and there are times when we don't pray, things don't happen. Listen, that's a great mystery to me. I don't fully understand all of it. You certainly don't have to understand it. You don't even have to agree with it, but if you don't, you're going to really struggle with a lot of different places in Scripture. For example, Jonah chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jonah chapter 3. I just want to read this to you. This will be familiar to a lot of you. You probably remember Jonah on your little uh, flannel graph or whatever it's called uh, thing in Sunday school for those of you who grew up in church. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, go on day's journey, and he called out. Look at this. This is his message. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So if you think I sometimes have depressing messages or come down too hard on you, at least I don't preach like this. Like that was all he said. He got up and he's just like, you got 40 days, turn or burn. Drops the mic and like, we'll see ya. God bless. I'm out. Like that's literally his message. And it says the people of Nineveh believe God. That's kind of discouraging to me at times. Like, I spend, you know, 15 hours working on a message that's 35 minutes long, and sometimes you guys are just like, oh, great, see you later. You're going to Chili's, right? He's like five seconds, and it's like the whole city. <laughs> and the people of Nineveh believed God, and look at this, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the look at this is crazy. The word then reached the king of Nineveh, like, "Hey, Jonah just came and said we're going to all die, right, because of our sins." He then arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast or herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out to the mighty God. So like the king's like, let's just like go the extra mile. Like not only you don't touch food, don't let your pets eat either. Like literally don't let any animal eat or drink. We're all going to fast before God. Why? Look at this. Why? He says, because who knows? Verse 9. God may turn and relent. And he may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. Let this rock your theology. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he was going to do to them. And he did not do it. What we miss in this English translation is that the word for relent here is the Hebrew word naham, which can be translated relent, but it can also be translated as to repent or to change one's mind. So in light of that, what we then more literally read is that when God saw what they did and how they nahamed, he nahamed. Or if some translations say, and your your Bible might say this, when they changed their minds, God changed his mind. And this isn't just a one-time event. We actually see a pattern of this throughout Scripture. For example, Joel chapter 2, verse 12-14. through 14. I'll put it on the screen for you. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And He, what? Relent. Relents over disaster. Same word there. Who knows whether He will turn and relent, And leave a blessing behind and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Again, there's other places we could look outside of this, but what I want you to notice is oftentimes in the scripture, what you see, guys, listen, is whenever we turn around and change our direction, God tends to do the same thing. And again, we don't have to get all that. Some of you might say, well, how in the world is that possible? Look, I don't fully get it, but I like the way Arthur Wallace puts it. He says this, whenever man changes his heart, It makes it morally possible for God to behave differently towards him while still acting consistently with his holy character and principles. And if you're here and you're just like, man, I just don't know about this. Look, I mean, it stretches me too. But I think about the the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right before he's about to be crucified. And we always quote the end of that prayer. Not thy will be done, but your will. We pray it all in every prayer. We pray it, right? But not my will be done, your will be done. That's a beautiful prayer. But you ever notice what's at the front of that prayer? Hey, God, is there a way out of this? What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross, which is kind of Jesus' gig. And he's literally saying, like, if there's any other way that this can be done, like, I'm just asking you. I'm, I'm wondering. He's trying to change God's mind at that moment. He's talking to his father just because there's a relationship. Like, is there another way out of this? Now, he does come at the end and say, not my will be done, but yours. And here's the point. Yes, there's a place for us to absolutely say, man, I just take it as it is. I surrender to you. It is what it is. But then there's a time for us to seek. There's a time for us to knock. There's a time for us to say, God, I don't agree with this. I want this to change. I want to." There's a time for us to absolutely fast and to pray for the purpose of trying to change God's mind. Now, we know God is always going to act according to his will and do what is good, right, and perfect. But there's still a time for us to do this. Finally, in lot of that, in the fifth place, where we see prayer and fasting as a natural ally is around the idea of getting to know God's mind in a situation. I don't know about you, but for me, most of the time when I'm praying, I'm not trying to change God's mind. I'm just trying to know it. Anybody else there? It's like I'm just trying to like know, like, God, what is it that you have for me? Like, what what do I go right? Do I go left? Like, what is it that you Have And I think fasting is one of the best ways that I know to help sharpen our mind's focus so that we can cut through the noise and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. If you go back to Acts chapter 13, where we started, and we're almost done this morning, but Acts 13, again, if you look, verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so they're worshiping, right, they're fasting, and while they're fasting, what happens? This is prayer. They hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them clearly. And he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Right? If, they just, if they got this wrong, it, it, it has a totally different trajectory, right? I mean, the, and this, this sets the pace, like I said, for, for the gospel to come to where we are today. But they, they're fasting, they hear the Holy Spirit, and then again, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As I mentioned earlier, you do not have to fast to pray But from the best I see, when you fast, you give your mind the best chance possible to cut through the noise and to listen to God speaking over you into your present situation and your future. Which is why whenever as pastors we go to make a big decision in the church, like in July when we sit together with the leaders and we try to think about where we are as a church and where we're going, we'll call for the leaders to fast and to pray. It's a way for us to cut through the noise and the busyness of life and just hear God clearly speaking to us through His Holy Spirit. So there you have it. There's five types of prayer for which fasting is a natural ally. It's to repent, to grieve, to call out to God in a crisis, to change God's mind, and to know God's mind. All that being said, the practice for this week is on our app. You can go and access it there. Before I say something about the practice, I just want to remind you again of the heart behind this. If you're new today, Um, We as a church really believe that three to four times a year, it's incredibly important for us to pick a teaching from Jesus' life and something that he practiced, and then I or Adam or someone else will teach on that here, and then we'll practice it literally in the context of our missional communities. And the reason we do this is I want you to think about this. We right now live in an age of just information overload. Like, we are not hurting for information. Would you agree? you can get whatever you want. I mean, it's just right there at your fingertips. I read one statistic this past week that said one edition of the New York Times, aka fake news, right? It contains more information than a 17th century English man would have encountered his entire lifetime. Isn't that crazy? And so as a result of this, many of us have grown up conditioned from childhood to hear lots of information, maybe even be inspired by the information, and yet doing nothing about it. And because we know this is true, as pastors, we want to try to guard our church from falling into this trap. We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word, okay? And so three to four times a year, again, we pick a practice from Jesus's life. We teach on it. We don't assume anybody knows it. We teach on it, and we practice it together. And this week, a lot of that, the practice is really simple. It's to fast. Okay, And you can do that from sunup to sundown. You can do that for 24 hours. You can do that through breakfast and lunch. I mean, you decide it's between you and God. Um, but what we want to encourage you to do this time is this. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about fasting, and we said one of the reasons to fast is to do it so you starve your flesh and feed on the Spirit. And that is certainly true. But this week, we want you to focus on a little bit different element of fasting. What we want you to do is to pick one of those five areas where you want to experience more of God or you want to see God move in your life. Maybe, honestly... It's a habitual sin. Some of you in here, you're looking at porn. Your wife hasn't busted you. Nobody else has busted you. You know what's wrong. You're convicted by it, but you haven't been able to shake it. I don't know what it may be for some of you this morning, but there's something in your life. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe for you, it's grief. You've never really processed your grief in a healthy way. You just kind of try to like get busy and just get over it. And don't. I don't know what it may be, but I want to encourage you to pick one of those five things, and then whenever you fast, when you feel a hunger pain, every time you feel a hunger pain, pray to God about whatever it is that you're burdened about. Take that hunger pain to God in prayer. And listen, sometimes sometimes when you fast and pray, you're going to experience something really beautiful and really amazing. Um, a couple weeks ago, this was for me, I was fasting and praying and I was actually kind of having a discouraging moment just in light of some things in ministry and dealing with some of my own shame, you know, not being good enough and you've got to be better. And anyways, I was fasting and I was praying and I, and I prayed to God. I said, God, I would really appreciate if you would send someone like Paul Whaley into my life to give me a word of encouragement. Now, some of you know Paul Whaley. He preached four or five weeks ago here. I don't have Paul Whaley's number. He don't have my number. First time I'd met him was when he preached here, but I know he has one of the healthiest churches in our country, and I really admire what he has to say. And So I just prayed. I didn't even mean Paul Whaley necessarily. Just someone like Paul Whaley. God sent him into my life. And you know what happened? By 2 p.m. that day, I get this text. Hey, Jared, this is Paul Whaley. Love being at your church, bro. God is on the move there. Very proud of you. I watched you. I listened to your people and observed a spirit-filled, healthy church. Bro, don't listen to the lies from the enemy. Keep running the race. I would join your church tomorrow. Now I don't share that to be like, hey, guys, you're really part of a great church. Paul Whaley says so. Like, I share that because I didn't prompt that. I didn't ask for his number. I didn't get a hold of Chuck and say, hey, Chuck, you think maybe you could, like, drop a little seed in Paul's, you know, like, heart? Maybe see if you can call I, I never caught that was just a conversation I had with the Lord. Fasting and praying, the Lord takes it, the Holy Spirit prompts him, he's obedient to the Holy Spirit, gets my number from Chuck, he never had it, and shot me that text. Sometimes when you fast and pray, something amazing will happen like that. Other times, you know what's gonna happen? You're just gonna get hangry. Seriously. And you're gonna obsess over the hamburger station, right? And you're gonna get frustrated with your family. You know, I mean, sometimes, right, you're going to feel really close to God, and other times you're just going to crash, and you're going to lose your temper with your spouse and your kids. Not that I have, but you probably will, right? <laughs> and so the point I just want to make as we come to a close is, listen, the practices, the spiritual disciplines, whether it's praying or silence and solitude or reading the scriptures, fasting, they don't always work right there and right then. on no. They don't. They, they, they don't. And that's actually a good thing because, listen, If the practices worked on the spot every time we did that, or we we felt like they worked on the spot every time, you know what would happen? We would reduce our relationship with God to a transaction that was simply about us getting instant gratification whenever we wanted it. And therefore, what would happen is we would view the spiritual disciplines as this coin we put into the vending machine anytime we just want goodies to fall from heaven. And if that's your approach to the spiritual disciplines or how you view fasting, listen to me, and we're almost done, Please hear this. I want to make this very clear because I think I can be misunderstood in a lot of some of the things I've said this morning. More than fasting, more than fasting being a ritual you do for God for the purpose of getting instant gratification. Fasting is about a relationship with God for the purpose of long-term fulfillment. I want to say that again. Fasting, more than it being about a ritual you do for God for the purpose of getting instant gratification Fasting is about a relationship with God for the purpose of long-term fulfillment. And that long-term fulfillment, hear me, that long-term fulfillment, I'm telling you guys, does not come from getting goodies. It comes from getting God, who is the author of life, who is the giver of gifts, and therefore as the giver of gifts must be better than the gifts themselves, who alone is good, right, and perfect. And every single week as we come, we take of communion here at these two tables or the two tables in the back. We do it to remember, to taste and see God really is good. To remember that because of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, he has given us now all access into the presence of God, who alone can give you the salvation and the satisfaction you're longing for. The good news of the gospel is, guys, you don't have to work your way into God's lap. You don't have to fast. You don't have to do any of the spiritual lessons. You don't have to show up here on Sunday mornings if you don't want to. Jesus Christ has paved the way for you through His work not your work into the presence of God so that you can receive the fulfillment you're longing for. And as you come to the table today, here's what I want you to do. Keep this in mind. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Try not to you know, talk and get distracted, right? Focus in. When you come to the table, realize you're coming with empty hands. You have nothing. You have nothing to bring. And come and move from that posture of fasting to a posture of feasting. To taking the bread and dipping it in the juice. And remember that because of Christ, you can now have everything that you need. If you are here today and you are a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, you've trusted in Christ, you're invited. doesn't matter if you're member of this church or not. You're invited to this, throw a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, two in the front, two stations in the back. Gluten-free option for those of you that want it in the back. And uh, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, man, I really hope today is the day of salvation for you. I really, really do. There is nothing that would bring me greater joy than to be some, see some of you right now, this morning, pass from death to life. God is crazy about you. The Bible says he rejoices over you. singing. You've never felt love, I promise you, like the love of the Father. And today, if you want to experience that love, there is nothing getting in the way of that except your own pride. You cannot sin too much. You can't you cannot. God's grace is sufficient. So if you're here today and you want to experience the love the Father already has for you, then you can come and you can talk to me. I'd love to, to share with you about next steps. And you don't have to come to me. You don't have to come up here. God's here. You just go to him where you are. You can go to him where you are. But if you want directions on next steps, I would love to talk with you. I know Adam be here. I would love to do the same thing. So in light of that, let's stand together. The band's going to come forward. And I want to pray for us. We'll sing another song. It's a celebratory song, is that right, Ben? That's right. So after you take a communion, let me encourage you to do this, okay? Because I think we get a little uh, confused on this. Um, we still consider this a part of worship. I know it's, I know it's, you know, it's been an hour and whatever, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes since we started. Um, sometimes maybe we just want to like, you know, grab the communion, like, okay, we're done. We think this, we think of this as a response time, okay? It's a time for us rather than just kind of like being hearers of the word, not doers, and just okay, I heard that. Now next. We grab communion, we receive that, and then what I'd encourage you to do is is return to your seats. It's going to be five minutes, I think, roughly, probably five to seven minutes before we're done, right? Take the bread, communion, go back to your seats if you can. If you can't, no problem, right? No one's going to judge you for that, except maybe Sean Goodson, but uh, we won't. And, uh, just kidding, Sean. We'd encourage you to come back and sing with us, okay, in response to what God has done for us. Let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and partake. Father, I thank you so much for... um, for your word that you have given us that is active and living and sharper than a two-edged sword, I thank you for each man, woman, and child who is here today. God, I, I pray that, that, that truly that we will open our hearts up to experience you as you really are. I pray that as we partake of communion that, that the gospel will become as real and tangible in our own lives as that bread and juice is in our mouths. I pray for someone who maybe does not know you, the Holy Spirit, right now, would you convict them, give them the sweet conviction of your Holy Spirit, Help them to see maybe they have religion, but they don't have a relationship. And I pray that, God, they will turn from trust They're trusting in something, Lord. They're putting faith in something. And I pray that they will refocus that and they will put it completely and firmly in you, in your perfect life, death, and resurrection. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.